Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1271. Interview number 10 with Jim Eugenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on Veterans Day, November 11th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim Eugenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny in the Trade, that was the focal point of 25, count them, 25 warm-hour interviews in 2018 and 2019. And Jim is also the author of the book JFK Revisited, which in turn is uh, something of a literary derivative of the new Oliver Stone documentary, JFK Revisited, and also the larger four-hour version called JFK Destiny Betrayed. It was Jim who was selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for the both the two- and four-hour versions of the documentary, and Jim also wrote and edited the book JFK Revisited. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Nice to be here, Dave. Well, we, it looks like we've, we've solved my, uh, levels problem here and that, uh, we won't have a problem with my voice being too, uh, soft. That's not one I've ever had <laughs> in the past, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, we, we can perhaps, uh, we'll, we'll do a, a, a Veterans Day segue, but you know, um, as the interviews have progressed, you know, I've heard people commenting either on my blog site or whatever, my blog, uh, on, on the blog, about, you know, well, Oliver Stone didn't talk about this, and how come Oliver Stone didn't talk about that? And, you know, uh, it's just, you know, uh, A, <laughs> Oliver Stone uh, presented enough material uh, in both the two-hour and four-hour <laughs> documentaries. The four-hour, I think, would exhaust the attention span of all but the most hardy individuals. And I think we should note that Oliver Stone is not a JFK researcher per se. He is a motion picture director who has, I think, frankly, this is my own opinion, has done literally heroic work with the capital H and the capital W. I've been studying the JFK assassination on and off for years, going back to the 1970s. And after JFK in 1991, there was an exponential expansion of JFK-related material. And Oliver Stone himself, uh, I don't know who cast the first stone at stone, but there was no shortage of them coming from the media. And in the, as you mentioned earlier, Jim, in the call to JFK, it was mentioned that most of the, that many of the documents that the House Select Committee on Assassinations had generated were classified until 2029. That generated outrage led directly to the uh, passage of the JFK Records Act. And the ARRB itself, which I think in many ways could be seen as uh, Oliver Stone's uh, institutional godchild. I mean, it was the, the direct outgrowth of his efforts. And the, Oliver Stone ha- even noted that because of what the ARRB had generated, that, quote, conspiracy theory had become conspiracy fact. And uh, I'd just like to get your thoughts on that and uh, maybe expand on that, ruminate about that. Well, if if you recall, and I hope everybody watched this because it's available on YouTube, um, at the Cannes Film Festival last year, Oliver was in the main amphitheater, which seats, I think, 2,100 people. And he got the film shown, I think it was through his producer, Fernando Zulchin. He got the film shown at the Cannes Film Festival. And this massive standing ovation when he walks down the aisle and onto the stage. All right. And that's what he said. He said, years ago, okay, it was conspiracy theory. Today, we've turned that into 
cons- conspiracy fact. And that, of course, the, the main difference being that in the interim between the two films, there was the ARB. And the ARB, although it was mainly a declassification body, they were also allowed to, I think the language in the, uh, the legislation was something like explore the paradoxes in the evidence. Okay. In other words, what that meant was that if the evidence was not clear on something, okay, if it was confusing, if it was obfuscatory, then they had the right to go ahead and investigate why that was so. All right. Now, because, as I've said before, they they really were kind of underfunded and understaffed, they mainly did this with the autopsy evidence. And the reason they did this, this is a very interesting story. Uh, Lou Stokes was a congressman from Ohio who became the chairman of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He went to see the film with his daughter. And at the end of the film, there's this crawl that says, um, words of the effect, the files of the last investigation of Kennedy's murder, the House Select Committee, are classified until the year 2029. As they were walking out of the theater, his daughter said there was to Lou Stokes, why did you do that, Daddy? <laughs> so, so what happened is that once the ARB was in office, Stokes went to that five-person board and said, I strongly recommend that you do an investigation of Kennedy's autopsy because nobody on our committee was happy with what we ended up with. And that is really, now think, think about this for a while. Think about this for a minute. If you know anything about the way the House Select Committee operated, you had, you had a panel of, I believe, seven experts. No, excuse me, nine experts. Okay. And this included Michael Bodden, who was the medical examiner from New York City, and Cyril Wecht, the med- former medical examiner examiner for Allegheny County, which includes the city of Pittsburgh. All right. So you had nine of these guys, nine of these. And here is the guy running the committee who says nobody was satisfied with the results of our investigation of the medical evidence. Now, let me explain one simple thing to show you why he made that statement. In volume seven of the House Select Committee volumes, On page 37, it says, words of the effect, unlike the people in Parkland who say they saw this hole in the back of Kennedy's head, the people at Bethesda who had the body for three hours, not just 20 minutes, disagreed with the Dallas witnesses about this point. Now, the reason that this is so bad is because it was exposed, and there's no other way to say this, it was exposed as a lie. And nobody wanted to take credit for writing that, by the way. So let me, let me explain why it's a lie. When the ARB declassified the records of the House Select Committee, they found out that not only was this wrong, but the direct opposite was the case. That their witnesses from Bethesda at the House Select Committee on Assassinations testifying under oath, okay, they said the same thing. That there was a baseball-sized hole in the back of Kennedy's skull. And not only did they say it, They drew pictures of it. So here you have this spectacle of something like 22 witnesses at Bethesda and 21 witnesses at Dallas saying the same thing. So when Gary Aguilar 
who I hope we'll have on this series soon. Okay. When Gary Aguilar collected all of this evidence, proving that the House Select Committee lied, he then confronted several people. Like Robert Blakey, like Michael Bodden, like Andy Purdy, who was the lead House Select Committee invest- medical investigator. And guess what? None of them would say that they wrote that sentence. Well, then the question then becomes, who the hell wrote it? You know, and didn't you guys see it? And then Bodden and wept, especially wept, you know, wept, I trust. Okay, said, we never saw this stuff. This, this, the evidence that Gary was putting up on the screen. He said, we never saw this stuff. Okay. All right. So that is how bad the cover up was about this very important piece of it. Now, I don't have to tell Dave, I don't tell you why that's so important, of course. Okay. Cause it strongly indicates that there was a shot from the front, which is something that, you know, both the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee did everything they could to try and neutralize the evidence on this score. But if you put that together with the Zapruder film, you know, <laughs> you've got this, you know, this kind of uh strong, terrific, backward, you know, jolt to Kennedy's body. And then you've got this hole in the back of Kennedy's head. Well, duh, I think that kind of suggests, you know, that there was a shot from the front. and uh, And whoever did it, the House Select Committee was determined not to let that go out there to the general public, which I, th- and this is only one of the things that Lou Stokes was talking about. You know, the fact that they were not pleased, you know, with the medical investigation into Kennedy's assassination. Did we talk about Stringer? Oh, we have, yes. Um... Oh, okay. That's another thing. That's another thing that the, the ARB discovered was a fact that he denied, John Stringer denied that he took the pictures of Kennedy's brain. Now, if you have this big hole in the back of Kennedy's head, how the hell can you have a brain that weighs 1500 grams above the average? Okay. And so we didn't talk about Newtson though, did we? Well, we have not talked about that. What, what I would like to do, though, Jim. You want to do that with Gary? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do the medical evidence, uh, the, cause there were various levels of cover-up and various participants, uh, the physicians, uh, Dr. Berkeley, Kennedy's personal physician, uh, Mr. Knudsen, we can review Springer, but mm-hmm. the, uh, Forensic medical evidence is something that I would like to go into at length with uh, Dr. Gary Aguilar. It also, in the interests of full disclosure, as you've already kind of hinted at, my own eyes sort of missed over. I get impatient with that information. Not that this is not in any way to cast aspersions on it. But anyone who has seen the Zapruder film knows full well that the fatal shot came from the front and it blew Kennedy's head right off. Uh, Gary Aguilar actually said as much uh, in the documentary. I think he, he used the word exploded. Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent who climbed up on the back of the limousine just after JFK got the headshot, so he, he basically looked right to a big hole in JFK's head. It's kind of mm, grim. Right. But the, I, I, I want to second something that, that you, uh, noted. And that was in the, uh, in JFK, the 1991 film. I bet one of the most effective things that Oliver Stone did was to have Jim Garrison, the, the Kevin Costner, uh, portrayal show the headshot sequence over and over, you know, back into the left, back into the left. No one who has seen that could possibly take the official version as being anything but deception. Uh, I mentioned, Jim, this is Veterans Day, and, and as a long-time researcher, someone who had looked at the Kennedy assassination at first in the 1970s, I consider Oliver Stone 
to be a hero. He he boosted the Gaiathkeosasomation and the associated literature into an entirely new realm. And in that regard, I think he fulfilled something of his own destiny or karma. He himself was a decorated combat infantryman in Vietnam, and as we've seen in a, in a number of programs, both in this series and in our interviews about destiny betrayed, uh, among the reasons Kennedy was killed was he was pulling us out of Vietnam. So, yes, and I think, and I don't know if you know this, the very first student film that Oliver made was about Vietnam. Did you know that? Well, I know he did Platoon, which I've seen. I don't see many movies, but no. Well, 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 his first student film at NYU, okay, was about how difficult it was for a returning veteran to come home to the United States after going through the Vietnam War. Okay. How, you know, nobody loved these guys like they did the World War II guys. Okay. So, so did this really hit home with him? Okay. And so I believe, and we all know what happened with Platoon, that was one way of, of him expressing this on a small scale. You know, just like eight or nine main characters in this uh, jungle in Vietnam. And then I think the JFK film gave him an opportunity to look at that whole thing from an aerial view, so to speak, from above as to what was really happening. Okay. You know, what, why on earth were we there? And didn't anybody have any sense about we weren't going to win? You know, and so Fletcher Prouty, who wrote a, a wonderful essay on this in, I believe, the 80s, okay, um, talked about how he knew from his position as a liaison between the Pentagon and the CIA that Kennedy was getting out. And when Oliver heard that, great, let's <laughs> put that in the movie. And let me add another thing, because I don't think I said, I don't think I talked, did I talk about this before? How Garrison knew about this from a professor who wrote him a 26 page letter in 1967. Uh, and it was titled Kennedy's plan to get out of Vietnam. And I found it when I was going through Garrison's uh, files because his family let me go through his files. And there was that a, there's a that wasn't Peter Bale Scott, was it? No, no. It was okay. a guy nobody ever heard of. Okay. okay. Not even Peter Scale Scott was writing out this in 67. He didn't do it till the Pentagon Papers in 1970. And so this guy wrote him a handwritten 26-page single-spaced writing on every line essay. And I, I always wondered, where did Garrison get this idea? back in 1968, that Kennedy was going to get out of Vietnam because nobody was talking about it that early. And so then I found that letter and I understood why. So this was perfect for Oliver's film because it was really true, you know, that Garrison was really onto this. Now, they they, they did use some poetic license, okay, because Garrison never really met Prouty until afterwards, after the investigation. Okay, but I think that can be excused. That kind of dramatic license can be excused because it's not actually lying. It's just, you know, misplacing a time zone or two, you know. But I I don't know how you felt, but in retrospect, I think that's one of the best parts of the film. That walk from the, uh, what is it from? It's from the uh, Lincoln, Lincoln Memorial. Memorial. Yeah, the Lincoln Memorial to the Washington Monument and Donald Sutherland. I mean, as if there was, I mean, talk about taking possession of a role. I mean, he's Donald Sutherland was a better Fletcher Prouty than Fletcher Prouty. Okay. <laughs> you know. And Donald Sutherland was also one of the narrators in the documentary. Now, let, let me tell you something else, which I didn't know. When Sutherland came down to do the narration for the documentary, you know, he is with Oliver and the producer, Rob Wilson. And he told them, you know how far back I'd go on this? Okay. And he says, no. I was, uh, what was the name of that movie about the Kennedy assassination that Mark Lane? Oh, uh, 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 executive action? Yeah. 
I was the original producer on executive action. Okay. And they said, but it took so long to get the project off the ground that I had to leave for another commitment. Okay. And so Burt Lancaster came in and he produced the movie. Okay. And by the way, you know, when, when you put your own money in, you become an investor, right? Burt Lancaster, because I know the guy who ended up doing the PR for that film, Steve Jaffe. Okay. And he told me Burt Lancaster made a lot of money off that movie. Okay. Executive action. So that's how far back Donald Sutherland goes with the Kennedy assassination. Wow, that is interesting. But they, again, yeah. I, I consider Oliver Stone to be a hero. Well, I, I had when I first, you, you know, you know, David. Let me let me just talk. To, this is a very interesting point. You know, I, I mean, really interesting. See, up and up until the time that Oliver made his film, there were very, very, very few people who understood that Kennedy was getting out and that Johnson did not continue Kennedy's policy. He consciously reversed it and then tried to cover up the fact that he was reversing it. All right. Very, 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 you, you probably knew, right? Because I think you're familiar with Peter Scott's essays that he wrote for the Pentagon Papers. Absolutely. Yeah. But very few people, if you take a percentage of the public or even academia, or even the news media. Very, very, very few people knew about this. All right. And then what, when Oliver did what he did. Okay. And he could back it up with both Prouty and John Newman's work, you know, expanding on, on Peter Scott's original essay. Okay. See, this, this had the force of a, of a shotgun blast at close range because now, not only were we saying that the mainstream media, you screwed up the Kennedy assassination, not only were we saying that, we're also saying that you missed the whole point of what happened afterwards. You know, how the but, hell could you miss something that big? Okay. <laughs> well, did they miss that? One of the things that I remember uh, very vividly and, and frankly bitterly in the pillaring of Oliver Stone, which actually began before the release of the film, uh, people wonder why I use the term so-called progressive sector. And looking at the treatment that Oliver Stone was subjected to uh, with regard to uh, the disclosures on Vietnam, which were a matter of public record, when the so-called progressive sector came after him, uh, I think some of them at least were defending their professional gravitas. But that was, you would think that the quote left unquote would be able to uh, move a little bit farther from uh, the position to which they'd been intellectually tethered than they did. But that, that was utterly disgraceful. And I think it, it speaks volumes. Yeah, you're, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about Alexander Coburn. You're talking about Noam Chomsky, uh, Z Magazine, right? Yep. You know, they, they started attacking. They joined, this is incredible. They joined with the MSM. Okay. And they started attacking Oliver Stone's film. And Coburn did it not just on the matter of Vietnam, but also on the matter of conspiracy. Can you imagine that? I mean, that is unbelievable. Okay. Oh, oh, and, and they have a lot of company too, but, uh, maybe this is a pun that, but, um, the, uh, you know, moving, moving into the subject of, uh, veterans. And this, again, this is Veterans Day. Uh, one of the things that I want to set forth and for the veteran listeners, the discussion to follow might be considered JFK 101, okay? But uh, one of the things that the that is mentioned in the film is that several of JFK's aides were in the limousine immediately after his, and they were World War II veterans who understood 
what gunfire sounded like. And they said that in addition to the shot from the back, there were shots from the side and from the front. And that, of course, uh, brings us to one of the central considerations, and that is uh, CE-399, or as so many wags have turned it, the magic bullet. Uh, I wonder, Jim, if you would delineate for us what the whole CE-399 in Bolia was about, why the Warren Commission had to limit itself to three shots, and uh, we'll go into some of the characteristics of that truly magical bullet. <laughs> I thought Cyril Weck did a very good job on this, by the way, in, in, in the film. All right. Um, what we call Commission Exhibit 399, CE 399 for short, was found on a gurney at Parkland Hospital. I noticed I didn't say which gurney it was found at, because to this day, we don't know what gurney it was found on. Uh, Jim, right. the, the, let me let me bug in for just a second. I was uh, really stunned. Uh, O.P. Wright was an employee at Parkland Hospital. We'll talk about him in a second. But his widow uh, testified or, or gave uh, uh, voice to think something she had been told by numerous nurses at Parkland, which is that they found bullets on many gurneys in <laughs> Parkland. Isn't that, it, isn't that rich? Isn't that oh, really well, rich? Well, it, it, okay. it, it sounds like well, it was truly a magic bullet because it became the first inanimate object in the history of known science to reproduce itself. And uh, so <laughs> there were, I mean, all kidding aside, though, obviously there were people putting bullets on gurneys all over Parkland Hospital. Um, they were covering it, their bases. <laughs> <laughs> among other things, that we could use a different word, but we're, this is going to be on, on the radio. But that, that to me was tragicomic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it comes right back to, uh, what you said, you know, uh, notice you didn't say what gurney, uh, no indeed. Uh, back to CE 399. All right. So what happens is that Daryl Tomlinson, uh, was going to the men's room. He bumped into this gurney. All right. And off the bottom of the mat is this projectile. All right. All right. And so he gives it to O.P. Wright, who was the chief of security at the hospital. All right. And O.P. Wright then gives it to the Secret Service. All right. And then I think it's Richard Johnson. All right. Then Richard Johnson then gives it to the chief of the Secret Service, Rowley, James Rowley. And then Rowley gives it to the FBI, and the FBI guy brings it down to uh, the FBI lab and deposits it with Robert Frazier. All right. Now, here is a very serious problem uh, with this bullet, okay? When Gary Aguilar and Tink Thompson began to investigate the identification of the bullet. Because, you know, once the bullet's in, the FBI then has to take it back and get it identified. Is this the right bullet that you found? All right. This is called chain of custody. In the documents for the one commission, it says that FBI agent Bardwell Odom took the bullet back to Tomlinson and O.P. Wright, and they identified the bullet as the one that they picked up on the day of the assassination. Gary and Tink had a very serious problem with this. The very serious problem was they could not find the report that Bardwell Odom wrote about that identification. I mean, this is a very important piece of evidence, right? 
So you would think that after the meeting that he would, you know, go into his office and say, you know, at uh, on June 12th, I went down to Parkland Hospital, you know, and I'm sure he would put it down in a report to come to CYA. Okay. All right. And so they couldn't find it. They looked everywhere. They called the National Archives and said, give us every field report that Bardwell Odom wrote. Okay. And they couldn't find it. And so Gary Aguilar goes to Tink and Tink Thompson is a private investigator. So he has one of these big, you know, databases, you know, where you can find anybody. And, and Gary says, what do you think we should do? And he says, why don't we find Barbara Lodum? And he goes, okay, look him up. Okay. And so they find Bardwell Odom. Gary calls him up. They say they'll be down to see him. They go down to see him. He's living in a little town outside of Dallas. All right. And he says, did you show this bullet to O.P. Wright and Daryl Thomason like this FBI report says you did, which you didn't write. Somebody else wrote it. And he goes, no, I never showed that bullet to anybody. And I'd be damn sure if I showed it to O.P. Wright that I would remember because I knew O.P. Wright for a long time. Okay, we were friends because he used to work at the sheriff's department. He goes, so you never showed it to anybody and you never wrote a report? And he goes, no, I would have been sure to write a report about something that important. So, in other words, there was no identification of this CE-399. And you have to think, well, why wasn't there? Why wasn't there one? Okay. This relates to a similar problem with CE-399, that somehow the FBI had the bullet before it was delivered to them by the FBI. The official version of this is that somehow, some way, the bullet came in at a little bit after nine o'clock. Okay. And it's, this is written down actually. Okay. The problem is that Robert Frazier had already written in his notes that I got the stretcher bullet at seven thirty. There was only one stretcher bullet, okay? So how on earth could he get a bullet at after 9 o'clock when, in fact, he already had the stretcher bullet at 7.30? Now, these are pretty formidable problems, okay, especially in a court of law if you're if you're trying to present this kind of evidence. Now, I don't have to tell anybody because I'm sure you've gone over this many, many times before. There's also the problem, and this is something we concentrated on in the film. See, in the film, we concentrated on chain of custody, all right, and the condition of the bullet. We had Dr. Joseph Dolce and Dr. Cyril Wecht discussing the condition of the bullet, all right? Joseph Dolce worked for the Warren Commission, all right? And like he says in the film, we went ahead and did experiments trying to find out if a bullet could come out as intact as this bullet was if you fired it through tissue and bone. And he said, and he, we show the exhibit in the film, in every single case, in every single case that we went ahead and did this experiment with, all the bullets came out very much deformed some of them were even flattened, okay? Some of them were even flattened. And we talked about this with Cyril Weck, you know, talking about the two bones in John Connolly that this bullet smashed, the radius bone in his wrist and one of his ribs, okay? And and as Cyril Weck goes, you know, John Connolly was a big guy. He's a six foot three, you know? So in a guy that big... You know, that, uh, that, that you could smash his rib, you know, and break his wrist and the bullet comes out. And if you look at it, the nose is completely, the nose of the bullet is completely unblemished. 
Okay. And so this is the way that we attacked this very serious problem with Commission Exhibit 399. We deliberately, we deliberately avoided the whole thing, which I'm sure you're aware of, the so-called trajectory analysis that these people do today. Are you, I'm sure you're aware of this, aren't you, Dave? Yeah. Well, if, 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 one thing that I, I thought we should perhaps, uh, if, if, again, for professional listeners, this will be JFK 101. Well, but no, no, we, no, no, because there's something new that I want to, I want to expose here that hardly anybody knows. Because we just did it with, see, one of the people we were lucky to get was Henry Lee. I don't have to say who Henry Lee is. Henry Lee is probably the most famous uh, criminalist in the country. And in fact, he's probably the number one crime reconstruction guy that there is in America. And he can testify in almost any state in the United States and 42 countries. All right. Which is more than one can say for all these hot dogs that they put on cable TV like Dale Myers, okay, and they puts up this trajectory analysis. Well, see, you can do this, okay? I asked, I before we shot the film, I went out to meet Henry Lee because he was in L.A. Uh, testifying in a case, and he was having dinner out at Malibu, and he said, why don't I come down to hand him the questions? And so I drove down to Malibu, and I met him at a restaurant with about eight or ten people there, and and I asked this question. I asked about a trajectory analysis. You know what he said to me? I was completely blindsided when he said this. He said, you can't do one in in this case. I said, what? Here I have the number one crime reconstruction guy in the United States saying we can't do it. And I said, I didn't think you were going to say that. Okay, and he goes, you can't do it in this case for a very simple reason. And that's because... Neither wound in Kennedy was dissected, which is true, which is true. I'm sure you know that, Dave. You, and you, and you, Pierre Fink, the uh, Army colonel, was actually ordered in the Bethesda autopsy not to dissect the wound. And he, exactly. he testified to that effect under oath, which is proof in an American law court of a conspiracy. Yeah, exactly correct. He testified to that, the trial of Clay Shaw under oath, that they would not let him dissect the back wound. All right. And so, so Henry Lee said, look, these guys will tell you that they can do it, but unless you have the wound dissected, it's really guesswork. Okay. And so when, when, when he said that, when he said that, I said, holy shit, he's probably right. I mean, this guy's done 1,000 gunshot wound cases, you know, in his career, which he's now retired from. So I told Oliver, you know, I don't think we should do this. I don't, I don't, I don't want I don't want our own witness criticizing us afterward, okay? So that's why we didn't do these silly trajectory analysis things. When you've got the best guy in the country saying you can't do it, that's good enough for me. Well, Jim, one of the things about CE 399, and again, this will be, uh, elementary to those who are familiar with the basics of the JFK official version. And that is why the Warren Commission was obliged to limit the number of shots that were fired to three shots and how that in turn became sort of the uh, existential or uh, intellectual uh, midwife of CE three ninety nine or the magic bullet. Yes, th- th- you're you're exactly correct. It's a matter of simple arithmetic, you know. Plus the fact that they were not going to admit that something was wrong with the crime scene when they got up there. The po- police, led by Wolf Fritz. Uh, the chief of homicide and burglary, uh, or excuse me, robbery. He allegedly found three shells, okay, on the floor of the Texas well, the, the book depository. He found one rifle. So from the beginning, unless you were going to say that the crime scene was rigged, you had to limit yourself to only Three bullets, three shells, of course, 
three bullets. One of the bullets you have to reserve, especially for John F. Kennedy, because that's the one that blows off his head. The final, allegedly the final shot. One of the bullets you had to have for James Tagg, because this is the one that supposedly missed the car completely, landed on another street, Commerce, not Elm Street, but Commerce, bounced up off the curb and went ahead and cut open the cheek of this bystander, James Tegg. So that's two. Now you're down to one bullet. You're down to one bullet. This has to go ahead and be adequate for all the other junk <laughs> that is this that's in the car. Okay. Now in a, in addition to there being some damage in the car, there's a this has to account for the bullet that goes through John F. Kennedy, and they say it went front to back, exited his throat, went into John Conley, exited his chest, then while smashing one rib, and then went ahead and smashed the radius bone and then turned around and landed in his left thigh, somehow working its way out of that left thigh wound and going underneath the mat in this gurney. So you had to have this one bullet account for all this. But let me add one other thing, because this did not make it into the film. I really wanted to put this in the movie, and our original distributor was very interested in it. That's called the magic bullet. But the thing is, if if you take a look at the headshot, the Warren Commission says that this bullet went through Kennedy, landed its nose and base in the front seat of the car. Let me say that again. This bullet went through Kennedy and landed in its nose and its base in the front seat of the car. Which means that this bullet broke open in kind of two separate parts as it went through Kennedy's skull, and then it went out the side of Kennedy's head, and it landed in the front right seat of the car on the floor. Now... Does that sound kind of strange to you? Okay. Um, by <laughs> way, that, 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 yeah, I, I, I would say. That, right, that, right. That sounds as strange as the bullet, the, the, the CE 399 being found underneath. Well, well, what's so strange a, about this, Dave, is this bullet essentially went through Kennedy's skull and broke in half. Okay. This other bullet stayed intact. And it went through two bones. Okay. So we'll talk about this more with Gary Aguilar. Okay. Because in my opinion, this is what I call the second magic bullet, which nobody talks about. All right. This, but the whole thing, you know, once you break this down, the whole thing is preposterous. The idea that somebody in the sixth floor at a Texas school book depository could fire two direct hits and then miss the whole car and have it landed on another street? I mean, go ahead and line up the angle to that bullet, okay? It didn't come from the sixth floor, uh, you know, on, on the Main Street side of the Texas School Book Depository, not not to have that angle at the, at the curb of James Tegg, all right? And, of course, you know this. How on earth, if you've ever seen the raw ammunition for Western Cartridge Company, Malnicker Carcano, 6.5 caliber bullets, if you've ever seen one, and many of, probably most of your listeners have, it's copper coated, the whole surface of the bullet. 
is copper-coated. When the FBI did the chemical analysis of the curb where the bullet struck at the foot of James Tigg, they came up with no copper. Now, this is a very, very serious problem because now not only do you have this incredible feat of missing the whole car, two direct hits, but you miss the whole car in one shot, the the angle that it creates, but then you're saying there's no copper? Now, what the other side has done to escape this problem is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, if you look back at Gerald Posner's book, uh, that book, by the way, is called Case Closed. And, you know, since this right. interview is going to be on the radio, uh, I have to uh, rein in my rhetorical horses uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I, although I don't have an accent, my parents are from the Midwest, I uh, spent my early years in New York City. New York City has its own dictionary. It starts with M and it ends with F. And I would have to reach into the foulest backwaters of my vocabulary to characterize a Gerald Posner or case closed. But uh, yes, it is, shall we say, less than convincing. In that book, he understands this is a problem. Do you know what he says? He says, as the bullet flew through the branches of the oak tree, the twig stripped off the copper from the bullet shell. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe I was reading this. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the most crazy things I think I've ever heard in my life. All right? We should remember, too, that the rifle, well, I've forgotten off the top of my head whether Oswald was right-handed or left-handed, but the rifle had been sighted in the scope right. for someone from- of the opposite. Right. Uh, should but the opposite hand, even right. if Oswald had been an excellent shot, which he was not, uh, he wouldn't have been able to do what he is alleged to have done. Unless he was ambidextrous, you know. <laughs> so, so now, Bugliosi, he didn't want to use Posner's ridiculous, uh, excuse. So you know what he said? This is what he said. He said the bullet hit the street on Elm and as it was spinning, it spun off all the copper jacketing. Of oh, the Jesus. <laughs> oh, you know, well, you know, again, it is a magic, uh, bullet, but you know, the, the, was it seven or eight non-fatal wounds? It didn't just smash John Conley's wrist, but it inflicted a number of other wounds. And we'll go into this more with, uh, uh, Gary Aguilar, but to Gary Aguilar, it, it inflicted a whole bunch of wounds in both JFK and in John Conley, mm-hmm. and yet the bullet comes out pristine. Bullets don't do that. Right. And as, as Cyril Weck told me, uh, Jim, once a bullet is sunk into flesh, it becomes encased. How that bullet ever got out of Conley's thigh you know, is a mystery to me because I've done 30,000 autopsies and bullets don't just reverse trajectory like that. Okay. And come out on the, below the mat on a stretcher. Okay. It just does things like that just don't happen. Not in my experience. Okay. And so, the stretcher we should recall, didn't that belong to Ronald? Right. And, and, and in all likelihood, it was the wrong stretcher. Okay. <laughs> so we go back. And by the way, I should give credit to where it's due. Tink Thompson got that from Wallace Milam. Wallace Milam was a very good researcher. I think he lives in uh, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, he went to see O.P. Wright's widow. He had passed away. She was at that time the head of nursing uh, in Parkland Hospital. And that's what she told him. Because that wasn't the only bullet we found. We found all kinds of bullets. <laughs> <laughs> you know they were springing up everywhere okay you know so who, whoever the conspirators were you know whether it be jack ruby's doing it or who else is there okay they were making sure that somebody discovered a bullet on the right stretcher of course they didn't have to do that because arlen specter was going to go ahead and make sure that that ended up being john Conley's stretcher 
Okay. It's almost funny, by the way, to read that testimony because Alan Dulles thought it was Kennedy's stretcher and Specter had to correct him and he says, no, 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 it was John Conley's stretcher. Okay. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it's interesting too, Jim. Uh, although the agencies closed ranks and uh, presented something of a united front, uh, individual employees of some of those agencies, we've spoken about how the FBI did the vast bulk of the legwork upon which the Warren Commission relied, but two FBI agents named Siebert and O'Neill uh, flat out contradicted uh, the official version, not only with regard to uh, CE-399, uh, but also with regard to the damage done to Kennedy's head. Uh, tell us about Siebert, O'Neill, and what they said about this, quote, magic bullet, unquote. Siebert oh, and O'Neill were two of the most interesting witnesses that the ARB had, and we give them some time in the film. You know, we could have given them a lot more time because that's how important they are. See, Siebert and O'Neill were told by Jagger Hoover to go to Bethesda because he wanted to report on what happened at the morgue during the autopsy. So they went ahead and they uh, met the plane. They followed it to the Bethesda morgue, all right, and they were there from about, I believe, about 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock until about midnight. The autopsy, I think, was finished at around 11, all right? And so they then went ahead and they wrote a report. Now, guess what? That report is not in the 26 volumes of evidence. Let me say that again. The FBI report on the autopsy is not in the 26 volumes of the evidence. 17,000 pages, and you couldn't find the room for this report, which is very important. Now, let me tell you something else. You won't see a deposition by either Siebert or O'Neill among the almost 500 witnesses that were deposed by the commission. Let me say that again. 500 witnesses... And you did not want to interview two people who were writing about the autopsy that night at Bethesda. Now, in a normal case, that wouldn't happen, right? But Arlen Specter knew what he was doing, okay? And he understood what he was supposed to do from the start. So that's why they were not interviewed and their report is not there because they disagreed with what the official story ended up being in this case. All right. They said there's no way in the world that that bullet wound in Kennedy's back ever came out his throat. It was much too low and they couldn't find an exit for it. Okay. Let me say that again. The bullet wound was much too low and they couldn't find an exit for it. So, as far as they were concerned, there was no such thing as a single bullet theory. And in fact, they actually made fun of Spectre, okay, when they were finally deposed by the ARB. They said, look, when you start changing an autopsy after the body is gone, you're not working with forensic science. You're working with magic. And that's what these guys did. They magically raised that wound up. And they magically made that bullet fly right through Kennedy's body when, in fact, the night of the autopsy, they couldn't find an exit for it. Now, the other thing that they said was that, no, when they were shown the pictures, the autopsy photographs of Kennedy's skull, they said words of the effect that 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 doesn't look like what I saw. It looks like somebody rearranged things. Okay, to make it look much cleaner and much neater than the thing that I saw on the back of JFK's skull. Because if you, I'm sure you've seen these pictures, right, Dave? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. It, 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 the back of Kennedy's head looks like somebody shampooed it and combed his hair. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's how neat it looks. 
It really looks like he just got a haircut, they shampooed it, and they combed it away. Well, they said, no, that is not what we saw, all right? Somebody was was fiddling either with the back of the skull or with the pictures. So this is from the very beginning, from the very beginning. And this is one of the things that really kind of angers me, as you can see from the tone of my voice. You know, the idea that this was not a cover up. The idea that somehow these guys didn't know what they were doing. You know, this is exposed by these very good witnesses. They did know what they were doing from the very beginning. They knew that they had to cover up certain circumstances that would betray at least, at least two gunmen in Dealey Plaza, more likely three. All right. You know, how else do you explain something like this? Oh, I want to know too that Mr. Siebert and O'Neill also said in no uncertain terms that the bullet that they saw was not the pristine CE-399. Well, well, when, when, when they saw the bullet, they didn't see the bullet that night because the bullet was being transported to the FBI headquarters. Okay. They were at the morgue. Okay. But when they ended up seeing the bullet, they didn't think that that thing could have done. Okay. What they saw at the morgue that night. All right. Um, it's, it's really when, when you, and by the way, by the way, to show you how bad this is, to show you how really bad this is, when Spectre deep-sixed the Siebert O'Neill report and did not include it in the volumes, he told Rankin words of the effect that it was just like a page and a half or something, you know, and it wasn't really important to the case. In other words, he was smearing these guys smearing their work to his superior. So what, and of course, anybody who sees the Seabrook New Report, it's five pages long. All right. The reason that, uh, that he deep sixed it had nothing to do with it being skimpy or not detailed. It had everything to do with the fact that it would contravene, you know, where, where Spectre was headed on that railroad track line. All right. To this, to the magic bullet theory of the single assassin. So this is the kind of perfidy, and I don't know what else you call it. Okay, I mean, it's it's just intentionally, I believe, covering up the facts. And we've done this for about the last 40 minutes, shown how, you know, the, the forensics in this case would get any, in the real world, in the real world, and which is as far away from the Warren Commission as you can get. If you can expose this kind of stuff, this kind of fraud, this kind of obstruction of justice, this kind of, uh, you know, non-identification. Okay. If you can show this in a criminal case, you can get the case thrown out of court. Okay. Because fraud and obstruction of justice, those are criminal acts. If you're doing it in a court of law, trying to go ahead and convict somebody. And that's what would, I firmly believe that. We talked about Stringer in the photographs. We talked about CE399. We talked about Siebert and O'Neill. This is the kind of stuff that gets cases thrown out of court. We are all out of time here. There is much more just to talk about with the ballistics, the uh, bullet with the bent tip that was found in the car and other things. And uh, interestingly enough, some of the dissenting members of the Warren Commission proper, but that is going to have to wait for a future time. We've got about a minute and a half. Uh, Kennedy's and King.com, Black Op Radio, and where can people get the documentary in the book? Okay. Kennedy's and King.com is my website. Okay. Very interesting stuff there. Articles and reviews and news. Uh, the, uh, the film you can get at Amazon.com. It's a, I think a three or four disc set in the DVD, which is still in the top 10, by the way. The book is called JFK Revisited. Uh, through the looking glass, which has both scripts plus 200 pages of excerpted interviews from the witnesses that we couldn't fit in, uh, to the film. And also, uh, Black Ops Radio. Oh, Black Ops Radio is wrong. I, I'm a semi-regular guest on that show out of, uh, Vancouver, Canada with Leno Sanic. 
Okay. And we will go into more of the uh, information about the bullets and, and uh, the, the obvious cover-up in our next interview. This concludes for the record program number 1271. Interview number 10 with Jim Eugenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on Veterans Day, November 11th, 2022. I'm Dave Emery for Jim Eugenio. Thanks for listening.